welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I am one of your hosts, Rania Kalik, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola. Hey, Kevin. Hello. It's good to be back. Uh, so we're really excited to have uh, someone new on today who we haven't interviewed before. Uh, it's a friend of mine, Renato Velez. He is also an academic with a degree in history and a master's in international relations at the University of Chile. Uh, and that's what he's here to talk about today is what's happening in Chile. So welcome, Renato. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I'm glad to be with you guys. Well, we're glad to have you with us, too. So I, everybody in the West, I think, has been watching in awe what's happening in Chile with these massive protests. Um, so why don't you start by telling us how this started? Oh, OK. So I think uh, three weeks ago, there was a hike in the Metro Fair, which is uh, right now like uh, one more than one dollar uh, per trip. And it's not really like a big hike, uh, but the issue is that since 2006 we have been uh, we have been experiencing like uh, one hike after the other, after the other, after the other. So uh, it's now one dollar, like the the like the the fare in the metro, uh, and then students who are who were not actually affected by the by the uh, metro hike uh, fair, fair hike they started uh, they started uh, doing mass evasions that's what they call it which is like a mob of students they storm a metro station and go inside without paying like their like the student fare for instance and uh, this start going like for a week or so and then the government condemned them students for doing this and uh, then one day uh, this escalated so the government starts shooting down the metro station and this uh, the result of that was like the entire like uh, you know the entire transportation system of Santiago was shut down and then rioting start and this thing escalated so that's that's the beginning of this protest but uh, it's not just the metro fare so th this is interesting thing i mean the metro fare is probably the less uh like uh, the less important thing among the all the things people are demanding in the streets right now so this was just the thing that like this was the spark uh for uh, protest after you know uh, problems in healthcare in pensions social security education etc cetera, etc cetera. and we have we had like social movements in uh, mainly student movements in 2006 and 2011 and they never get like proper solutions by the by the governments both from center left and right and now this like exploded so it was very violent the first days but it was also very massive in terms of the uh, of the protest that's really interesting. I can say something, you know, similar with Lebanon protests started is like people tried to say it's just this WhatsApp tax. But like what you sound, what you're saying sounds similar. It's, it's like years and years of a lot of bad economic policies. And in addition to the fact that there's all this um, protest movements prior that had built up to this, which I think is important to note. Um, but also it's been interesting to see how this is covered in the media, too, because you know, Chile is not that far from, let's say, Venezuela, uh, where when the government, like, makes even a one little move against protesters that's, like, very light, the Western media freaks out. But in Chile, the violence was insane. I mean, the level of repression was insane. I mean, the, the videos that we were seeing of tanks uh, in the street, they sent tanks to, like, a wealthy neighborhood. Can you talk a little bit about the government reaction? I mean, was that expected? Is that how things are in Chile? Or was that like, did it even shock you? Yeah, I mean, that shocked anybody. Like, uh, you know, because people should know that in Chile, it's not like in other countries. So the regular police here is the militarized police. And the civilian police, they just do, they just do like the uh, research, forensics, etc. But like uh, riot control and uh, like, like all the tasks that the civilian police usually do in other countries are made here by the uh, militarized police. Uh, 
So you are, if you go to any like street in downtown Santiago, you will always see like the water cannon. Uh, uh, you will see the gas throwing uh, like a vehicle. You will see the special forces, riot police uh, in full, like uh, like they, they look like Robocop and they're always there. Um, so we have uh, militarized police always uh, repressing uh, uh, protesters for in, in, in any situation so that's the average here but the new situation was this that uh, after two days of riots uh, president piñera uh, declared war on the chilean people and he later regret for saying that because he he said you know we are at war with a relentless enemy uh, very organized trying to destroy the peace of this country blah 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 uh, and then uh, the day before he declared state of emergency, uh, which is like the soft, it's a soft version of the state of siege. So uh, this uh, state of, of emergency allows him to use the military uh, to control public order. So this is the first time since the end of the dictatorship that uh, military has been involved in cracking down protests. We have been we, we, we have been seen like military on the streets after an earthquake or a natural disaster, but this is the first time you have actual army cracking down on protesters. And uh, you know th th this is interesting thing. I mean, nobody expected this to happen. It happens really quickly. I mean, just two days of protests are you are calling the army, and I was not the only one who noticed this. But you have the Hong Kong protests. Uh, for months and you still have not seen you know the army or any like anybody killed uh, by police in Hong Kong and we like in four days we have 20 dead uh, we have uh, I have the figures here we have 4,000 detainees uh, 100 people lost their eyes before uh, bullets by police and military we have 1,300 wounded we have 120 tortured people. We have 20 cases of uh, sexual abuse, some cases of rape against protesters. We have uh, 22 dead, and uh, these 22 dead people, uh, seven of them have been officially recognized as people who died at the hands of state agents, military and police. The rest were died, in, you know, in uh, because of accidents or fires or looting or whatever. But still, it's 20. 22 people dead in, in a week. This this is like unprecedented, even for us, you know. So for my generation especially, uh, when we see tanks on the streets and a state of siege, and then they impose curfew, that was a lot like the dictatorship. So for the old people, it was shocking to going, it was like going back to the dictatorship years. But for us, it was a completely new situation. And actually, a lot of people from my generation, they defied curfew every day uh, during the entire uh, state of emergency that was lifted then on Monday. And can you talk about uh, the leader, Sebastian Piñera, and where he comes from, the, the history? I, I understand that he actually has uh, people surrounding him who have links or his past history, he's actually had links to uh, Augusto Pinochet and the government that ran uh, the, the regime from back when. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, one, peop one thing people should know about Chile is that the right wing uh, parties in, uh, in our political system, uh, like their leaders and founders and figures, most of the old people there were all part of the uh, military dictatorship of Pinochet. So they they use like uh, high profile and low profile uh, positions in the the regime, uh, and there was never like uh, you should know that Pinochet never spent one day on jail in this country. So there is like a lot of impunity here, and uh, like being a Pinochetist is somehow normalized. Uh, it, it was normalized for for a long time, and actually we we have seen a revival of of, of, of people that are they say they are proud Pinochetist in the last three or four years. Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, uh, I am deviating from the point. But um, so Piñera, uh, he was a businessman, 
so he never had the like uh, government position during the dictatorship, but but he became rich because of the dictatorship. Uh, his brother Jose Piñera is one of the most uh, you know important figures of the dictatorship. He was a Chicago boy, uh, economist, and he was the guy that implemented like the most uh, radical structural reforms in, in our country. So he is the guy that privatized pensions, uh, privatized social security, healthcare. Uh, he destroyed the union power. Uh, he like uh, made this uh, labor flexibility as they call it, you know, so, you know, uh, the business owners have more facilities to uh, fire people and to prevent the, them from unionizing, etc., etc. He opened the mining sector to foreign investment. So he actually destroyed the policy of Allende of nationalizing the national uh, the natural resources. Uh, so this guy was the brother of uh, our current president, the one that made uh, the one that who made all this the, who took all these measures. Uh, Piñera during the dictatorship, he was involved in real estate uh, and banking. And he actually went was was uh, he was charged by the justice system uh, with fraud against a bank, uh, a, a bank called the Talca Bank, Banco de Talca, and uh, he he went fugitive like for a month during the dictatorship, and it was uh, due to the intervention of his brother, who was the minister of uh, social security and the minister of justice. Uh, that he would uh, like they push the Supreme Court to like uh, pull off the the charges against him so he was actually saved by his powerful brother during the dictatorship and then he continued to amass his fortune during the democracy years he bought uh, airlines television channels etc and uh, he claimed uh, President Piñera he claimed he voted against Pinochet in the referendum uh, that kicked, uh, kicked him out of power in 1988, but there is no proof of that. So he's always tried to present him as a moderate, but he's not a moderate. Uh, and uh, uh, actually, when Pinochet was detained in London in 1999, uh, Piñera and all the right-wing figures were on the streets of Chile protesting against uh, England for detaining Pinochet in London to be put on trial of uh, because of human rights abuses. So this is so these people, you know, people the right wing in Chile they used to you know, say that they condemn human rights violations under uh, Pinochet, but they are proud of the economic legacy of the dictatorship. So it's a, it's a, it's a li little cynic in my point of view because you know all these uh, economic reforms were possible and were only possible because the dictatorship was killing and torturing and disappearing people otherwise uh, people would be protesting on the street against these measures that is clever right like we privatized the privatization was great it just we were just against the torture but you had to do it to privatize wow Renato how would you describe like uh, the layout of Chile when it comes to politics is the right wing the more powerful and then and, and speaking of like in government has there been uh, like what we're what we would say maybe we saw in Argentina where there's like a left wing that's gaining more power at all and then what's it like in the streets because based on what we're seeing I mean these protests look massive so is this would you say these protests are actually like are they against the right wing and moving to the left as well or is it a mix uh, I think it's a mix because a uh, problem we have in Chile is that, I mean, the, the interesting thing about this protest is that there's, this is the first time that people across uh, class uh, difference and, and, and social difference went to the streets to protest against the system. So the problem we have is that people reject reject politics but nevertheless, they are doing politics by protesting. So one of the achievements of the neoliberal restructuring of this country in the 80s and 90s is that people have, uh, you know, they do not trust politicians and they don't, they don't care about politics. For a long time, since, you know, the early 2000 people start to care about politics, but they say, you know, 
politicians are all the same. It doesn't matter if it's left or right, whatever. So most of the people in the streets uh, are against the entire system. They do not trust politicians from the left and the right. Uh, but nevertheless, like the, what they are protesting is a critique of right-wing neoliberal policies. It's, the problem is that nobody is like politically aware of what they are actually doing. Like it's just a, a you know a reaction from the deep uh, uh, heart of the people. You know, people that is pissed off with the system, but they don't have like a proper elaborated uh, critique of. Uh, of the of the political and economic system, they only know is bad <laughs> that the, the system <laughs> has been screwing them. So that's the problem. So uh, a point I want to make is that you know actually in Chile in the last election we just got like uh, half of the people that was uh, enabled to vote they didn't went to the polls. So that tells you a lot about the you know the lack of legitimacy our system uh, has so a president just need 25 percent of the uh, people that could vote to get elected uh that's one thing uh, second thing is that in the political spectrum we have uh, for a long time like just before the last election since the end of the dictatorship until like 2017 um we have uh, we have like a center left block in power for a long time and then we have the right wing we have two right wing parties now there are four right wing parties but the historical ones were just two one was udi which was like the hardcore pinochetist uh, party and then you have like the uh, uh, national renewal which is like um, they claim to be more centrist, but they are the same like Pinochetist guys. Actually, now this party is more, uh, you know, fascist than the other one. So these are the both uh, the two parties that support Piñera uh, right now. And then you have the center left, which ruled the country from 1990 to 2006. Uh, sorry, to 2010. Then Piñera came to power the first time from 2010 to 2014. Then we have the center left again, and now we have the right wing again. So it's like uh, it's like the two party system in the United States. Uh, and in the last election, we have uh, um, the emergence of a new group, which is called Frente Amplio, like broad front, which is a progressive coalition of left wing, liberal progressive, social democrats, uh, Marxists. There's it's a, it's a mix of different uh, political forces and uh, it was it was made mainly from people that took part in the protest in 2011 and 2006 so the the leadership of this uh, new progressive group are from my generation but at the same time they, they got a lot of uh, support but not enough and now people is starting to you know not to trust this group too because they have not been able to push like meaningful reforms uh and we also have the communist party which is a historical party in Chile. And they have been very clever in pushing like, uh, you know, reforms that are maybe not structural, but are important to the to the to the Chilean people, to the working class. So, you know, his main project, uh, the, pro the main project of the Communist Party now is lowering the working times from 45 to 40 hours a week and they got like uh, overwhelming support from the population so they are being more clever uh, in trying to push some measures to improve the quality of life of chileans there's nothing structural yet so th there's no conditions to make a structural change yet this may change now actually would you be able to talk about the issue of of these university loans or student loans in Chile and, and, and what that means for people uh, and how they have to pay for them well into their 40s or 50s. Uh, this is obviously uh, not a unique issue to Chile. This is actually even happening in the United States, but yeah. it's quite pervasive. And, it, and I think, you know, it's amazing that that's central to a lot of the issues that are happening in Chile. Yeah, I mean, a student movement is actually the one that started like uh, it was the first social movement uh, 
of importance since uh, the end of the dictatorship. The student movement started in 2002 with uh, protesters demanding a student fare for transport. Then in 2006, it was uh, high school students um, demanding like uh, quality education and more money for public uh, education. And then in 2011, uh, you have a student protest uh, mainly focused on the student debt because, uh, you know, um, a college fee in Chile is between $4,000 and $9,000 a year. And uh, the average, uh, you know, salary here is $400. So, you know, uh, it's, it's a lot of money. You cannot pay it like uh, you cannot pay uh, college degree uh, without credit or without the scholarship. So in the 2000s, the center left government uh, of uh, Ricardo Lagos, which he, this is an interesting thing. I mean, uh, after the neoliberal like structural reforms that were made under the, under the dictatorship of Pinochet, uh, you have these center left governments during the 90s and the 2000s, and they only like uh, make uh, they, they 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 actually enshrine uh, the neoliberal uh, system uh, model, uh, and they made this kind of reforms that doesn't change anything or actually make things worse. So, sounds, so like this, uh, in sounds like Democrats exactly, in Sounds Exactly. Yeah, this is yeah. striking. I mean, so, is it, it's the Chicago boys is at the center of all of this, really. It seems like it's just the agenda of Milton Friedman to do this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, uh, you know, in the, in the 90s, there was a lot of people that were part of Allende's government. But during the dictatorship, they went overseas and, uh, you know, they studied at Duke University, at Harvard, at Chicago. So there was, they were socialists in the 70s, like radical socialists. And then in the 90s, they become like fully neoliberal. Uh, so one of these governments uh, have the brilliant idea of uh, creating credits for uh, middle class students. Uh, so if they don't have the money to pay for university, they can take these uh, credits. And it was called CAE, which in Spanish is a credit granted by the state. But it's not the state. The only thing that ensures you is that you will get the credit. But the credit is with the private bank. Uh, and the private bank can charge you with, uh, you know, a debt, which is two times the actual price of the of the college fees. And uh, they can't like, uh, you know, ask you for the money for, you know, 20 years or something. And there is a lot of people that have lost houses and property because they don't have the money to pay for these loans. Um, and, and, and that's the problem. So you now we, we have to pay like uh, insanely high college fees with this insanely insane the uh, credits that are unable, you are not able to pay them. Like if you're a, a, a average people here, you are not able to pay it. And uh, the other problem is that, you know, in, in the, uh, before the dictatorship, we have we used to have a good uh, system of public universities, but during the dictatorship, this uh, there was a, re a reform to promote uh, the creation of private universities. And private universities by law they should have been non-profit, but they they profited from, there was a lot of people that profited from creating private universities that offer like shitty degrees. And so you get a degree from that university, you will not get a job in what you have studied, but you have to pay the loan. So a lot of people, a lot of like, uh, you know, corporations made a lot of money creating private universities uh, to put students there and then, you know, they don't win anything from from they didn't win anything from getting those degrees on those universities. There was a lot of universities that were closed because of uh, financial malpractice, and they destroyed the life of thousands of students. Uh, so, so, so this is really a problem. Uh, the last government before Piñera, they uh, promised uh, to get uh, to offer free education. Uh, but, you know, in, 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 in most of countries, 
when you say free education, it means that in public universities, you don't pay like the college fees and you can go and, and, and study. But in this case, uh, you know, the, this, the, the government gives you a scholarship to get to, to a public university or a private university. So this is not, you know, the state taking care of the public system. It's again, you know, the state uh, using public money to fund private universities and public universities because this is the other problem. Uh, during the dictatorship, uh, public universities were underfunded by the state. So the, 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 the universities work with the college fees and the money they want for like uh, projects of uh, re research projects or whatever. So the state is not putting money into public universities, which is like the logic thing. Uh, so that's the problem. I mean, the entire university system is, is broken. And, uh, you know, this uh, free education promised by the last government doesn't solve the core issue, which is like public universities are, 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 are on decline. They don't have money. Uh, and they charge you with this insanely high, like, uh, college fees, like public and private universities. We've seen coverage that uh, speaks to how part of this struggle is over uh, getting a new constitution in Chile. Can you talk about uh, what's happening around a possible new constitution and what some of the struggles are over what that might look like and, and and how the these battles are shaping up this this is i think one of the uh, most important developments of this wave of protest is that now like constitutional uh reform is probably one of the main demands uh people should know that in chile we only had three constitutions and none of them was discussed by the people of our country. I mean, the first one was in 1833 and uh, it was made by the oligarchical elite at the time. It was an authoritarian, uh, an authoritarian uh, constitution uh, that was made to prevent like poor people from actually taking part in the political life. Uh, then we have the second constitution that was uh, written in 1925, which was probably the best one uh, uh, because it was made by the commission of parliament and enshrined many social rights but wasn't like again discussed by the people it was made like an elite uh, in a, an elite convention and then we have our current constitution that was made in 1980 by a commission appointed by Pinochet uh, so the problem with our constitution is that the lacks of legitimacy from the very beginning because it was made it was made under a dictatorship and the other problem is that our constitution is uh, like uh, the legal like it's, it's like the legal uh justification or, or give the like the legitimacy for the neoliberal social and economic order so there is a concept in spanish which il, which is uh, estado subsidiario which in english should be subsidiary state, but I think subsidiary in English doesn't have the same meaning. But uh, it tells you that the state only intervenes in the social and economic areas when the private sector uh, cannot. So this means that, for instance, in education, if, if the private sector can offer education, then let the private sector do it. And only if uh, the private sector cannot ensure education for everyone, then the state will will intervene. And the same with pensions, the same with healthcare, the same with everything, you know. So the problem is that uh, when you try to push some progressive uh, reform in our country, uh, people from the right or the corporate sector will go to the constitutional tribunal and say, you know, uh, this government regulation goes against, you know, free enterprise, and the property rights, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the constitutional tribunal will stop this reform from actually happening. And this this has been a, a great problem. For instance, uh, we have the Consumer Protection Agency, uh, and there was a reform 
to uh, give the Consumer Protection Agency with actual powers to sanction uh, corporate malpractice. So when this thing was approved, because there was a lot of, uh, we, we, like, like uh, we have a, a form of chronic capitalism. So every sector of the economy is controlled by two or three uh, corporations and they like fix prices and they always screw the people. So at some point between 2010 and 2015, there was a lot of uh, cases of these uh, cartels colluding against uh, consumers. So there was a reform to try to give the Consumer Protection Agency powers to sanction these uh, corporations. And when this was approved, corporations on the right wing went to the Constitutional Tribunal and said, you know, this goes against free enterprise, the property rights, blah, blah, blah. And the Constitutional Tribunal said, yeah, the Constitution doesn't allow the government to regulate the private sector. So that's a problem with our current Constitution. Uh, so the talks about the new constitutions, uh, or, or about getting a new constitution, uh, are mainly about establishing a constituent assembly, like the ones in France, or a constitutional convention. Uh, and this has been a demand from the progressive sector since the very end of the dictatorship. Uh, and the issue is that now, even people from the Supreme Court, both houses of Congress uh, are now in favor of changing the Constitution. The, the government is still is not in favor of changing the Constitution, but this is the first time you have the other uh, branches of government uh, or the other branches of the state actually in favor of changing the Constitution. Because uh, otherwise, there is a lot of things we cannot do, like nationalizing water or nationalizing natural resources or guaranteeing social rights. We cannot do that with uh, this current constitution. So now there is like a serious push to change the constitution. And this is the first time I've seen this since I am alive, actually. So so this is very exciting, but uh, I don't know which uh, path we'll take, but let's hope it's a constitutional assembly. Of course, the, like the ultra right wing, they're scaring people saying, you know, this is the same as Venezuela and they want to impose the Bolivarian model, blah, 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 etc., etc. But, you know, people is not buying that uh, bullshit right now, actually. And then we saw recently that uh, this climate summit that was going to be held in December, uh, that the UN was going to be there discussing the framework, the United Nations discussing the, the world's response to the threat of climate change. Uh, my question isn't exactly why this was, um, uh, you know, what's happening now that it was scrapped. It's, uh, I'm wondering if you could speak to the, the right-wing politics and, and the corporate, the, 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 the neoliberal politics of the country. Is, is there maybe some suspicion or discussion about how this serves the agendas of these business executives that may not want to address climate change because uh, or they don't actually see and, and want to acknowledge the threat to the environment that must be dealt with? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, we, we, we were going to hold two summits in the next two months. One was, one was APEC and the other was the COP25. Uh, like the climate change uh, summit. Uh, so let me say something before addressing your question. Uh, the, uh, Chile has been a US ally since the Pinochet years. So even during our center left governments, we always were aligned with the United States policy, but always like not in the front line. We are not like Colombia, for instance. But we were always like supporting neoliberal policies and uh, uh, privatization, free trade, and blah blah blah. Uh, but uh, in the la in this government, I mean uh, the, the current Piñera's uh, government, is the first one that actually uh, become like more vocally aligned with the United States because before before Piñera we were only focused on trade in our foreign policy, but we are now meddling in other uh, countries affairs like Venezuela 
and that was like a fiasco for Piñera because he went to uh, Cucuta in Colombia, tried to push directly for uh, regime change. Of course, that backfired. Uh, so he has been trying to uh, make himself a global leader. So there is a lot of jokes right now about global leadership uh, because he promised uh, that uh, he will going to be a global leader and etc cetera, etc cetera. and now he has these two summit cancelled because of the social unrest uh, but let me go back to the issue I mean uh, climate uh, I mean the problem here is more than climate change which is actually affecting us right now is more like a, uh, it's an environmental problem in general so a lot of people you know, you know, in um, in Spanish, drought uh, is uh, said sequía. You know, the lack of water, uh, and plunder is in Spanish uh, saqueo. So a lot of people here is saying uh, no es sequía, es saqueo, which means uh, this is not a, a drought, a natural drought. This is plundering of the water resources of the country. Uh, so we have a lot of environmental problems, mainly because our country during the Pinochet year was deindustrialized. So the only thing we do in this country is to export natural resources for, you know, other markets. And that has a lot of uh, environmental negative effects. So, for instance, there's even a Netflix uh, documentary, I think, called The Avocado War. So you can see there is entire uh, towns in uh, central Chile that do not have water animals are dying like thousands of animals die this year because of the lack of water because we have this natural draw but since all the water resources are monopolized by these agro business uh, companies that export uh, outside chile uh, there's people dying there's people getting uh, without jobs there's animal dying uh, dying and these guys are making money, destroying the environment to like to sell avocados to the states and China. <laughs> to put an example, there is also a, like uh, problems with the industrial wastelands. So there is a lot of industrial plants next to cities uh, in Chile, and you have the kids with the, like uh, toxic metals in their blood. And the, uh, this uh, climate change summit or this environmental summit. Uh, was an opportunity for all the, the, the environmental movement in our country to highlight that while while Piñera claims to to be a global leader and to be care, uh, to be concerned about the environment, there is a lot of environmental catastrophes going on in our country. So yeah, of course, a lot of people think that the reason why uh, Piñera cancelled the climate change summit. It's not because of the actual protests, because they are not a, an actual threat right now to the, to the government, but because he didn't want like to give uh, like explanations to the international press about all the uh, wrong things that have been going on here in Chile because of the you know uh, exploitation of natural resources and the mismanagement of the environment. You know, Renato, you mentioned. Uh his role in Venezuela and like participating in the U.S. regime change scheme there. And I think you and I have talked about this a bit before, uh, but can you explain like what has been the consequence of what the U.S. and its allies have done in Venezuela on Chile? Because Chile has taken a lot of Venezuelan refugees. How has that impacted politics in Chile? Yeah, that's a very tricky issue, but uh, for just to give you an example, uh, there is a lot of people in Chile, uh, immigrants that came from Haiti. You know this country in the Caribbean. I don't know how to pronounce it in English. Uh, you know, no, but, but that's how that's how we say it too. <laughs> yeah. Haiti. So, yeah. So so the reason why these Haitian people came here is because uh, you, uh, Chile like was part of the occupation, the UN occupation forces in Haiti for a long time. Uh, so a lot of people came here because they discovered that Chile actually existed and they came here. Uh, and they are mostly professional people, but they get low skill jobs here. So you may be an 18 engineer, but you will be like uh, washing toilets in McDonald's, for instance. Uh, 
So that's that's what happened with them. And there are there's a lot of racism against them. Uh, and the Piñera's government make a very like xenophobic campaign against migrants. And they started like uh, uh, like uh, deporting immigrants in charter flights to their original to the to the to the original countries. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Piñera have have because it's not anymore had like an open uh, arms policy for Venezuelans. So now like the Venezuelan community is the biggest migrant community in our country right now. And um, and they are mostly not not entirely, but they are mostly what they call middle class and, and rich people, you know, because like the poor Venezuelans that are fleeing the, the economic crisis there go to Colombia or Peru, but the rich one fly to Chile and to the States probably. Uh, so that right now is having a backlash uh, against uh, the government because say, you know, you are taking too many Venezuelans and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, and at the same time, um, government is not idiot. So they know that these uh, migrant Venezuelans will be grateful uh, to this government for allowing them to come to Chile. And so he created a special visa for Venezuelans, which is a, res a democratic responsibility visa. That's the name it has. So we are concerned about democracy in Venezuela, but not in Haiti or in other countries. But the Venezuelan migrants uh, have uh, they have it more easy to get the citizenship, uh, the the residency uh, re residency here in Chile, and they can vote. Uh, in, in, in a shorter time. So this is like a reserve army uh, of uh, voting, of, of votes for the current government. Uh, so that's one of the effects we have. And the other effect is that now everything is about Venezuela. So, uh, you know, if uh, the Kirchner and Alberto Fernandez won in Argentina, they will turn Argentina into Venezuela. And, you know, every part in Latin America, when you have a progressive force winning, these people is saying, you know, oh, they will turn in, into a Bolivarian dictatorship, blah, blah, blah. And actually, this president got elected by scaremongering the people saying that if the center-left government was elected, we are going to become Venezuela, which is completely ridiculous. But a lot of people actually believe that. So now, so that's, that's one of the consequences we have. We have a lot of uh, Venezuelans here in Chile they are mostly like uh, against uh, Maduro, so they are used like an. They are being used and they are being instrumentalized by the government as uh, example of the result of bad socialist policies and blah blah blah. So that's that's the main consequence uh, here in Chile. So you, you have like a living example of bad socialist policies. That's the idea they want to promote. Listening to you, it, it sounds like most of what happens on the continent of South America, any part of it has its own ripple effect, has its own impact in Chile. Uh, so if Venezuela has its impact and effects in a negative sense, has the government treated the election of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, have they treated that as a kind of... Um, Thing to celebrate? Are they trying to move citizens in Chile to support where that government is going and then oppose Venezuela? Um, I mean, I, I think I didn't understand your question, but if you are asking me what was the reception of Bolsonaro? Yeah, like why, don't Bolsonaro I, why don't I put it Chile? more simply? I'll put it more simply, which is okay. if if they're opposed to Venezuela, do they find something to support in the election of Jair Bolsonaro? I, yeah, I mean, the right-wing people, they were all really excited uh, because of Bolsonaro getting elected. Like, he was like like the anti, like, uh, like anti-pop... I mean, this is an interesting thing. You know, these people are all scaremongering uh, people about, you know, populism. Uh, but, you know, Bolsonaro was a right-wing populist, as they say, but they all supported him. They all went back, uh, back him. A lot of, like, right-wing politicians went to Brazil to support Bolsonaro. Many 
people from this, like government officials from our current administration, they went to support Bolsonaro, you know, saying he will be like a bulwark against, you know, the fo uh, Sao Paulo Forum and the Bolivarian uh, crooks, uh, blah, blah, blah. So, that, so that's it. I mean, it's really like amazing how they normalize a far right regime in, in Latin America and say, no, he's just right wing. Uh, he, you know, the same thing they people usually say about Trump. He's not that radical. He just spoke bad, uh, bad things, but it's not really that bad. So they normalize Bolsonaro uh, in, in, in the region. It's not just this government, but also the Macri government in Argentina and other governments. They all welcome Bolsonaro saying, you know, he may say some mean things, but he's a really good guy, actually. So, so that's it. That's uh, absolutely horrible. I'm also yeah. wondering, I guess the, I, this is not really that important of a question, but it's more just curiosity. Did, uh, does that mean Cuba is no longer fear-mongered about? Now it's just Venezuela? It's no more like, oh, we're, we don't want to end up like Cuba. Yeah, actually, that's true. But let, let me tell you something, mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty funny. Uh, but, you know, there, like, just two days after the protests started in Chile, it was like the Venezuelan opposition outside Chile, not, not, not even related to, not even in our country, but it was like the Venezuela, the U.S.-backed Venezuelan opposition, they start claiming that the protests in Chile were a plot of Maduro and there was like Cuban and, uh, and, and, and Venezuelan agents uh, promoting chaos in our country, you know, and that's like the like the pattern we have been seeing in all the anti-neoliberal protests in Latin America. Now everything is blamed on Venezuela. Like for instance, Ecuador protests were also blamed by uh, Lenin Moreno as being a, like a Maduro back plot to overthrow him, uh, and they tried like the Venezuelan opposition. They tried to make uh, this protest, the Chilean protest, as uh, you know, a Bolivarian back uh, insurrection, etc. Uh, but it was not true. Like, not even the government claimed that in this case because it was too ridiculous. I mean, it's evident <laughs> to everyone. It's evident to anyone that Maduro has no play here. And this is a funny thing because you know, at in, in one hand. The right wing people used to say, you know, Venezuela is a bankrupt country. They don't have money, uh, you know, to 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 deliver like uh, uh, the social needs in Venezuela. But somehow they have enough money and enough intelligence agents uh, to like uh, <laughs> invade the entire continent, when, you know, and promote insurrection. And it's like really ridiculous. And then you also have like um, this claim by the uh, State Department uh, official who said that there was Russian in meddling in our protest, which is also pretty ridiculous. Like, really, like they actually believe that? I, I don't think so. But uh, just to, to finish this point, uh, I think, I don't know, it was yesterday or, or two days ago, there was one of the two biggest newspapers uh, in our country. They published an article without the author, it was just saying, you know, the newspaper team, they signed the, the article and they say that they have captured uh, one of the people involved in the fires of the metro stations and, and, and the looting. And they were, they say police sources, no name, police sources say uh, they are researching the involvement of Cuban and Venezuelan uh, foreigners in the protest. And this created like, uh, this generated outrage everywhere and uh, what's the attorney general the one who responded to this saying you know this is not actually true i mean we have not uh, we are not been researching any kind of foreign meddling right now so it was just uh, you know something that somebody within our government uh, offered to the redaction teams of the newspaper saying you know you may say there is foreign meddling, so we can like uh, blame somebody from from for, uh, about what happened, you know. So this is really interesting because nobody believed that shit, you know. Nobody believed that there was Cubans and Venezuelans agents. So this makes no sense at all. You know? I wish, I they, wish they Americans tried, were they that to push, yeah. they, they tried to push that, but they didn't succeed. Is a is a 
do you feel that, um, I guess, is there any fear that the protests could be hijacked in any way? I'm not sure for what, but because they're like against the current sitting government. Um, but yeah, is there any fear that it could be hijacked? Uh, you know, the problem with uh, our system is that lacks of legitimacy. So the more the danger is more than they are hijacked. It most probably the most likely uh, scenario is that the protest will like uh, decline because you cannot stay like protesting every day for I don't know one month or something. Uh, so people will get tired of protesting and no meaningful change will happen. So that's probably the most likely outcome. Uh, I actually I don't see that happening right now because as I as I said before, you know we have now the meaningful discussion about changing the constitution, which is a really, really important thing. Uh, so so I, I think one likely scenario is that the protest will stop at some point, maybe in two or three weeks. Uh, and then like politicians will try to offer like, uh, you know, possibilities of constitutional change. They will offer, you know, uh, that Congress may uh, create a new constitution. They may offer like a referendum to ask the people in which way they want the new constitution to be made through a commission or a constitutional assembly, whatever. Uh, so that's that's one of the outcomes that could happen now. Uh, my fear actually is that uh, this the current system is so delegitimized that people will actually not take part in the constitutional assembly if uh, this actually happened. And the problem is that, you know, people here in, in the right wing people in this country are very like disciplined. So they will go to vote anyway. So one of the scenarios is that the right wing could get uh, a lot of power within the new constitutional assembly because like the progressive people don't believe in progressive politicians. So they will not go and vote for them. So that's that's one of the fears I have uh, about the constitutional reform. But all, but at the same time, I think this is the only way forward to solve these problems. So I don't know. I just I consistently feel like Rania, we're talking about the United States minus the military police yeah, running it does. rampant. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. I will say, like a lot of the ways you're describing the dynamics in Chile, there's so many parallels, and I guess maybe because it's the same continent and has like a similar kind of right wing neoliberal government that doesn't go away. Um, and even the way you're describing the public reminds me of the way that the American public uh, thinks and acts. So. Lots and lots of parallels, but <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of out. I think you've answered so the questions like so well. Is there anything else you want to ask, Kevin? No, I, unless you had anything you wanted to add, Renato, before we wrapped. I don't know if you have anything you wanted to say. Um, you sort of were talking about your hope. Your hope is that a constitution could come out of this as far as like how badly this could go and what kind of, I guess... Uh, I suppose a nightmare, what sort of a nightmarish scenario could happen. I mean, it seems like there are enough people involved right now that they really want to get something positive out of all of this. Yeah, I mean, the negative scenario is the uh, that uh, after all this, uh, a far-right government like Bolsonaro style could come to Chile. I mean, that threat was, was present before the protest, but now the, the guy that is our Bolsonaro, no, I'm not talking about Piñera, but like the Bolsonaro-like figure we have right now is a guy called Jose Antonio Cast, uh, which is, uh, you know, a far-right politician, uh, a proud Pinochet supporter. supporter. Uh, his family were like former Wehrmacht officers from the German army. They came to Chile, they became landlords. Uh, and after the coup, just to put an example, the father of this guy uh, helped to make list of peasants that were benefited by the land reforms of Allende, and they give this list to the military, to the military to come there and kill and disappear these peasant people. So this this is the family from this guy. 
and he created the far-right party. He's in the process of legalizing uh, this party. Um, he got 8% of the last election, which is a lot, uh, because he ran as an independent, but he got 8%. Uh, and he has created, like, um, you know, some sort of cult movement, because they, 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 are, they say God Emperor cast the same way some idiots say got Emperor Trump in, 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 in the States. So they are trying to create the same uh, the same dynamic here. And my fear is that uh, the media always play a nefarious role in this country and they have been always trying to put the focus on the violence of the protests, you know, the rioting, the looting, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And you have this guy asking uh, for law and order. Uh, and actually, he was one of the lunatic guys that for years has been saying, you know, we need to deploy the military on the street to fight crime, to fight terrorism, blah, blah, blah. And now it actually happened. Like the government actually deployed the military to crack down protesters. So he got what he wanted. So my fear is that if, 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 if the like the political discussions about a new constitution uh, go in the wrong way, or, 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 or create more dissatisfaction among the people. People will not participate in the new election, but the right wing will be emboldened it, and they will vote for sure and put this guy in power. That's my fear, but at this point, actually, it, it doesn't seem very likely because this uh, far-right uh, uh, like figure has been completely like, uh, you know, he, he has said some stupid things right now. He, he was saying, you know, all the people that died in the protest uh, were actually looters and, and, and rioters. So they, they, they deserve uh, to be like killed. And, uh, and I fully back the military uh, in restoring order. People want to live in peace. So he made a ridicule of himself. Uh, so for now, he's not a threat, but he may be a threat in the future. He has connection with Bolsonaro. Uh, Bolsonaro has connections with the movement of Steve Bannon, so maybe maybe we can see some moves uh, from uh, you know this fake populist right uh, in in our country. But for now, it seems too far. Uh, 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 you know, it doesn't seem a very likely scenario, but it could happen. Maybe. Well, on that note, um, that thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about all of these things. This was such an amazing and illuminating interview, Renato. We really, really appreciate it, and we hope for the best. And maybe you can come back again soon and update us. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I want to come back and say some good news. <laughs> Most it's of our guests though, do. Actually, you know, it's funny because Renato, like the last time I saw him, he came to Lebanon like a couple months ago. <laughs> he was just here. So basically me, me and Renato planned the protests when he was here. Uh-huh. And then he went to Chile and I stayed here and then we started them. <laughs> We're the agitators, yeah. yeah. Exactly. But I, it sounds like Chile's protests have a lot more... Um, positive possibilities than I would say what I'm seeing in Lebanon, but uh, either way, I hope the situation in both countries moves in a positive direction. Yeah, let's, let's <laughs> hope so. I mean. let's hope. Anyways, thank you so much for coming on and uh, we will be back soon. Thanks to you and thanks for giving. Hello everyone, we'd like to take a moment to express solidarity with our friend and past guest Max Blumenthal. He was arrested on October 25th and charged with quote-unquote assault in a political case that he says is completely false and manufactured. It was manufactured by Venezuela opposition supporters. This happened back in May, early May. There were supporters back in April and May that were part of the group or supporters of the group of individuals that have worked with Juan Guaido in Venezuela to try and overthrow Nicolas Maduro's government with the full support of the administration of President Donald Trump. And they were out, they besieged this building as 
There were anti-war activists who were there in this diplomatic building in the Venezuela embassy in D.C. trying to hold it down and keep the right-wing opposition from taking it over. And so as a reporter for the Gray Zone Project, he's the editor and founder, he was present, he was engaged in reporting, he was covering what was happening inside and outside of this building. And five months ago, there was this apparent complaint levied by a woman that is entirely baseless. And now it was revived because Max Blumenthal is continuing on with this reporting. He is effectively continuing to shine a light on the nature of this opposition and what they're doing and how they work and the way they influence U.S. government policy. And so they need to silence him. And on October 25th, around 9 a.m. in the morning, the police showed up. They demanded entry. They threatened to break the door down of his home. They surrounded his home as if they were going to raid his home, SWAT style. The, the police then put him in a van, hauled him off to D.C. Central Jail. He was not arraigned immediately. He waited for two days. He was sitting in a cell. He was moved around to various cells and cages. He was shackled. His hands and ankles were kept in shackles for over five hours. He was in one cage with several inmates as he made requests for a phone call to his attorney. He was denied the ability to contact anybody outside of the jail. This was reported by Ben Norton for The Gray Zone. Ben Norton's been a guest on the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast in the past. So this is very serious, and we'll have much more to say. In fact, we probably will be able to talk to Max about what happened. Um, he'll be able to get into a little bit of detail about what this entailed. He's been talking to some alternative media shows. Uh, Jimmy Dore has provided some support. Uh, we heard from Matt Taibbi and Katie Helper, the hosts of the Useful Idiots, uh, that, that they believe that Max is deserving of support here and that more journalists should take notice of what happened to Max Blumenthal. I believe Lee Camp was somebody else who spoke up for Max Blumenthal. We've had some independent journalists speak up and uh, of course, there are people there at Gray Zone, Aaron Mate, Dan Coe, and others who have raised a fuss. Um, I believe Margaret Kimberly is another person who has spoken up. There are various people out there. We know we are missing the people in the corporate media that need to care about this because uh, what if this were to happen to them? They would definitely cry out. They would want support. They would say, this is Trump's America. And this shows just how things have degraded in this country. And I would show solidarity to them. But the fact of the matter is that they do not recognize what Max does as journalism. They fully disagree. They feel it has an agenda. And so they are blinded. And as this happens and unfolds, they, they do not speak up. They do that at risk to them. It's the same risk that comes from ignoring and, and acting like Julian Assange's prosecution is not as serious. I fully agree with that, that, that you can draw a line, that it goes from whistleblowers to Julian Assange, a dissident journalist, goes to Max Blumenthal, who's maybe not as unpopular as Julian Assange, but still has his own enemies in the DC establishment, still has his own enemies in the corporate press, and then eventually it just, it creeps on upward. And then you have people, you'll have people at the New York Times or the Washington Post who are facing legal jeopardy and they're going to want solidarity. And to the extent that they did not recognize that others like themselves were in trouble in the past, they may find it difficult to find support when they need it most. So... That's what I have to say right now. I know that Rania has other things to say as well. 
unfortunately we did not record something the when we were doing the interview with Renato it didn't make sense to raise this issue but as time passed it became apparent that there was really very little coverage of what happened to Max on October 28th he was able to report to the entire world that he was basically captured or <laughs> disappeared for a couple of days and then he showed up in court to be arraigned and was released and he has his pending case and you could finally tell everyone where he had been since Friday, October 25th. And it's scary, it's frightening to think that the government holds this kind of power to do that. And then it's upsetting to think that there are people who work in the journalism profession who are so apart of their own class hold themselves out to be so elite and special that they won't stick up for people who stray outside the confines of what is acceptable discourse and so when max is in this trouble they do not say anything because they don't want to be caught citing and showing solidarity with somebody who they think makes bad choices as a journalist. And that's a terrible way to be. They're doing, not only is that risky to them and the entire profession, but it's also just contemptible attitude to hold when you really should be able to recognize that there is something more going on here. He's doing this in the course of his reporting and we need to stand up and say that people should not be framed and set up on political charges as journalists when they're trying to do their work. So that's what I'll say right now. And for those of you who are patrons, we thank you for all of your monthly support. If you are not a patron of the Unauthorized Disclosure Show, I encourage you to go to patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure we posted an update from Rania Kalik on Lebanon she described what has happened in the last seven to ten days uh, really digging into how the climate has shifted it began positive but since then we've had the resignation of Lebanon's prime minister which means that there was a shift in the way things feel, she thinks that it's been a, a pretty negative turn, and you can hear her break down what has been unfolding in Lebanon. And she's there, she's based in Beirut, so she has some first-hand reporting on what is happening on the streets of Lebanon. So, until next week, thank you for listening to the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode.